Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I have a really special, longer than usual podcast for you today, but this conversation required longer than usual because the conversation was so important. April Dawn Harder joins me today, and I'll tell you a little bit more about her in a moment. I wanted to have her on because I wanted to have a conversation about racism from the psychological, emotional, mental health perspective. That's always been my passion and my mission to help you understand you better so that you can understand others better, to help you resolve your own wounding that's getting in the way of you experiencing more love and being a more loving person. And that's getting in the way of not living in the illusion of separation anymore. And when I first heard April interviewed on another podcast about how racism is a mental illness. And I know that's a big statement, so just listen to the episode because she will unpack that. Something in my nervous system relaxed. She went on to talk about how we can't shift our racism unless we heal our own trauma and wounding. And as I listened to her, I just thought, oh, wow, like this woman is really making so much sense. She's really coming from a more therapeutic perspective and not just a reactionary perspective. And April talks about, I don't think she talks about it in our interview, but I've heard her talk about it on other podcasts in her podcast, the Racism Recovery Podcast, which I highly recommend about how, you know, there's, there's activism and activism is so important, changing just the systematic injustices that we have. And what's also important is actually healing racism so that we're not just in performance allyship and we're activating and innovating from a place of truly integrating healing. This is an important episode for white people to listen to. It's also very important for people of color to listen to as well. She talks about the differences in our healing. And I think that part of what will be most healing for us all is to really understand where we're all coming from. So buckle up for this one. You may have to rewind and listen to what she says a couple times because the intricacies that she goes into and really explaining racism, narcissism, codependence, addiction is so good. (laughs) So thank you, April, again, for your time. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for doing this work. So more about April. April is a former medical social worker where she provided counseling to her patients and their family members to help them cope with the trauma of medical emergencies in the state of Texas. She later moved to Colorado and started her private practice to serve QTPOC patients with a history of racial trauma. After having worked with QTPOC, she decided to prevent racism in society by working with white clients as a coach using the racist signature theory. Finally, she opened up the Racism Recovery Center to provide psychotherapy for the treatment of racism. So if you're feeling, as a white person, if you're feeling a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of doubt, um, as a person of color, you're feeling a lot of anger, a lot of trauma, whatever anyone is feeling, I have a feeling that this conversation with April is really going to help. Before we dive in, just a few reminders. Speaking of healing, we are hosting our inner child workshop again, the last weekend of August, August 28th, 29th, 30th. It's a virtual workshop. The early bird discount, the $100 discount expires at the end of this month. So you're going to want to go join us, Christine Hassler, 
com slash inner child. This was an incredibly powerful workshop. The reason we're doing it again is because people were blown away by the results and what's happening in this time. We're being called forward to do our inner child healing. That's what we're being called forward to do. And even in the conversation with April, that's what we talk about going back and healing those old wounds. So come join us again, christinehassler.com slash inner child. And now onto my conversation with April. April, welcome to the show. I am really, really happy to have you here. Great to be here. As I told you, I have listened to your podcast, Racism Recovery. I have listened to you on multiple interviews. And when I heard you speak about racism and the wound of racism, my I took a deep breath and I exhaled. And you are the first person I've heard so far that's explained racism from a psychological, mental health, therapeutic, trauma-informed perspective that I feel presents such a healing opportunity. Most of your work is geared towards white people. And I think this work presents a healing opportunity for all people because it's really about dealing with our inner wounding, our inner trauma. So we have a lot to dive into today. (laughs) Before we go in, I'd love for you just to share a little bit of your story into how you got into this work, because I I know a little bit about it and I find it fascinating. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So those who listen to podcasters, you know, I'm going to say something kind of similar, but it's the truth. I just, I, I can't say it any other way, which is that it's not something that I intended to do. I didn't wake up one day and say, yeah, I want to treat white people for their racism. (laughs) That's not like, that's not something that I, I wanted to necessarily do, nor did I even think that something like that was possible. I got into this work little by little. So I moved from Texas to Colorado in 2016 and I go, you know what? There are so few black therapists. I really want to focus on treating black people in Colorado because I'm like, you know, they'll feel safer with me. They'll feel more comfortable with me. That's what I'm going to do. I thought I'm going to pay it forward to my community. We're going to pay it forward. Okay, great. A lot of black folks, a lot of black psychotherapists, we do that. We go, you know, because there's so few of us, very small percentage of therapists are black. And so it is hard for black people to find a black therapist, right? So, but the question is, why would a black person feel the need to seek out a black therapist? And the reason for that, and I discovered this, of course, later on, even more than I even realized, is the racism. So when I first came to Colorado and I started my private practice in 2016 in the fall, I was getting calls by Black folks that were so excited to come across my website, of course, because most of Colorado is pretty white. (laughs) It's pretty white in Colorado. (laughs) And they were so excited just to find me. And they said, they go, you know, I feel like my therapy sessions were pretty good with my white therapist for a while. Uh, But then when I started talking about the racism I experienced at work or in my relationships, like my romantic relationships, but mind you, it, especially the patients that I worked with, it really happened a lot at work, Mm. actually, mostly Mm -hmm. it happened Mm -hmm. primarily at work. Mm -hmm. They were like, I, I, I'm cool with my white therapist when I talk about racism with my white therapist. And a lot of them were females, white females. Um, Cause you know, as you probably know, a lot of, most of the therapists are white females. They identify as white females in the country. And uh, 
they would say that my therapist told me that it must have been in my mind. I must have been imagining things. Maybe I was overreacting. At that point, I thought to myself, that was a racist reaction Mm -hmm. and that is unprofessional and we need to do something about this within our field Mm because I thought this is called counter-transference. So in other words, this was a boundary violation occurring, which as psychotherapists, we are for the most part supposed to do our best to do no harm. And if a white person's acting in racist ways to black folks in therapy, then I think that those white people need to be educated, right? And that's where I eventually learned that education just wasn't enough. Mm. Mm. It wasn't enough. And how did I find that? Well, because it's all of its trial and error. So when I say that I go, that I didn't intend to do any of this, I meant, I mean that fully. But when you unravel layers, you start to see, oh, that means that doesn't work. This works. Okay, let me try something different because you're finding things out. What works and what doesn't work? So what I did was I basically started to coach white people who were psychotherapists. And these white psychotherapists, you know, I thought, because I was basically doing what a lot of anti-racism professionals do, which is which is kind of like the gold standard right now, which is I'm so let's say, Christine, you, you know, of course you're white. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and you say, I did this, this, and this. Let's pretend you're a therapist. And then uh, in my session, okay. And then you you say, could you tell me what I did that was racist? And I say, yes, this is what you said. And this is what you did that was racist. Okay, good. Thank you so much for pointing that out. And at first I thought, great. Like they're listening to me. Mm. Maybe they're going to learn from me. Well, that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> what happened was, is that I would point these things out to them. And then I'm not kidding you. The following week that I coached with them, same it would thing. literally repeat the same behavior. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, am I just a bad teacher? <laughs> of course, the first thing I thought of was, how am I failing? You know, of course, you know, mm. like, how am I failing them? Are they failing me? Mm. Then myself, then I started to experience countertransference mm. myself with my coaching clients because I didn't externally express it, but deep in my heart, I was getting racially triggered. Think about it. I'm black. I'm working with white people. They're acting in racist ways. Now, how did that happen? Well, that happened because they were reacting what I now call, you know, racist signatures. And really for those listening who may know a little bit about like anti-racism, these are called racist defense mechanisms. They're defense mechanisms and they're racist basically. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they were getting defensive with me when I was pointing some things out. Some of the things, some of the things that I taught them that pointed out, some of them, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm listening. But then other things, I think, of course, I know, were so triggering that they react in a racist defense mechanism. Now, I didn't understand that they were racist defense mechanisms. I didn't, you see, because this stuff is really not talked about right. in mainstream. I, I didn't know, I knew it was a defense mechanism. I'm like, why am I so offended by this? Well, it's because it's racist, right? And so what I learned was that these defense mechanisms is what was preventing them actually from learning actually to change, right? And that's a psychological issue. A defense mechanism is absolutely psychological, right? And so they were emotionally compromised and they couldn't learn some of the things that I was teaching them. So then I thought if these defense mechanisms are what is preventing them from change, then maybe I need to do something to address those defense mechanisms. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Because then I thought that will stop that little cycle of repeating. Right. Right. But it took me months. It took me about, I was coaching for about four months until it snapped to me that, and I tell people this all the time and it's, and I think a lot of people would not readily admit this, but I think it's important to admit where we're not helpful because after all, no one's perfect. Right. And so what happened was I really wasn't helping these white people. And for four months now, my social work values and ethics in me was like, I'm not helping these white people. They're mm. not learning how to stop their racism, you know? So, so some of the white, you know, therapists kept on working with me because they said, well, you know, it's a lifetime of work. And I used to even tell white people that because mm. when I, I remember the moment that, and this is another turning point for me. I remember when one of my coaching clients, again, a white psychotherapist told me and said, April, I really am listening to what you're saying. And I'm, I really am. And I'm sorry if this is offensive, but like, I just don't understand. Like you're pointing things out to me and I don't understand what you're mm-hmm. telling me. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, how, <laughs> this is where, I mean, I laugh, but it's not funny. I really was so hadn't healed from my racial trauma that at that moment I thought this white person is just so evil and so racist. They just don't get it. Mm. So I, in my head was already judging them, mm-hmm. but then I have a lot of compassion too. And this was causing me a lot of internal conflict inside. There was this part of me that felt compassion for these people. And there was this other part of me from racial trauma that was, Oh, these white people, they're so terrible. They're bad. Right. But I knew that I, I really wasn't helping them. And I felt really guilty about it. I didn't feel mm. ashamed, but I felt guilty mm. because why are you spending all this money on me? And then I can't really help you. And then I would say, and I forgot to mention this, but I said, I had heard other influencers say this on Instagram and other professionals. And then I said, well, I know exactly what to tell these white people when I can't help them. This is a lifetime of work. You shouldn't even complain. Uh. This is a lifetime of work. So I just literally, I remember the moment that I thought, oh, how dare this white person expect like them to get better (laughs) because like this is a lifetime of work, Uh, you know? So I just, at that moment, I remember honestly being corrupt mm -hmm. at that moment. I remember that moment of corruption and I was absolutely corrupt in that. Mm. Totally looking back. I mean, absolutely. And you know what I mean? Right? Like it's like making excuses. Like you're not really being honest to yourself. You're just saying, well, it's just this. I just literally copied what everybody else was saying. And if everybody else is saying that, then it must be be true. Yeah. 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 Because I didn't actually question myself. Mm -hmm. I just said, this is what everybody does. Mm. Oh, that's so key. That questioning self is so so key. Yeah. So I questioned myself Mm -hmm. and then one day, here's another turning point. So all these little things were like nagging at me, inner conflict, inner conflict, inner conflict. You can imagine there's this part of me going, these people need to get better. And at that point, I didn't see racism as a mental illness. I didn't. We'll get to that later, of course. I just thought it was a morality issue only. Mm. I only thought it was a morality issue. And I didn't really, really understand that it was deeply psychological at that point. That's why I felt so triggered to it. Oh, they're so amoral. And then one day, I mean, I'll never forget it. This was like the true turning point of turning points, I'm telling you. I was doing yoga. I love yoga. I've been practicing yoga since I was 19 years old. I'm 41. And I remember 
I finished a pretty intense yoga session at home, sweating big time. <laughs> and I was so grateful, like, oh, Shavasana, oh, you know. <laughs> and I remember all of a sudden it hit me. It just hit me. The insight came. And that happens for those who practice yoga. Those little insights, they come. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I felt it in my heart and I go, oh, these white people really don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're actually innocent. Like they're perpetrating racism, which is very painful to POC, but they actually genuinely don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That changed the game for me, Christine. Mm-hmm. That that just absolutely changed the game for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got goosebumps all over <laughs> when you when you said that. That changed the game. Yeah. Because I could no longer at that point my compassionate like swelled. A lot of people wonder where I get this compassion from. Like, how could you are you just yourself trauma bonding or something with white people? Yeah. And I'm like, no, like I went through a genuine, heart-centered, authentic moment where I truly snapped and go, these white people that I'm working with, they really don't get it. Yeah. So at that moment, in other words, I realized that white people, that most white people that I, I mean, actually every white pe- person that I work with, they're not actually complicit. You mm. see, when I thought that every white person was complicit and doing it on purpose, that's when I held that resentment, that grudge, and just right. really had a chip on my shoulder. Cause I was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go through the process of letting that anger go because I felt these white people are doing it on purpose to hurt Mm -hmm. me and to hurt everybody. Every white person's doing it on purpose because they Mm -hmm. don't care. Mm -hmm. And that I basically discovered was actually not true. And that not only changed the game for me, but also at that moment, I actually was sort of scared because I thought, oh, like, this is very different than what other people say. (laughs) And I was like, Ooh, this is kind of taboo having this compassion for white people. Like, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it kind of goes yeah. against the construct that racism has been taught in. You know, it's all anti-racism. It's it's mm-hmm. divisional. That all white it's, people are complicit. Yes. That all white this is the gold standard with an anti-racism. All white people are complicit. Yeah. So all white yeah. people are have white fragility. All white people partake in white supremacy. We'll break these words down as we talk. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being an integrity as a therapist and walking your talk and really, really being honest with yourself. That to me is what makes the best kind of therapist, one who's her own best client at the same time. So I, I really acknowledge you for that, April. Thank you. And it, it shows in your work. So let's let's break down some because I know a lot of my listeners, especially my white folks, they've tried to be good white people and you know, I've recommended books. White Fragility is one of the books that I recommended because I thought that was one of the books that, you know, we should read. And I know I've heard from a lot of people that they're confused. Black people are confused. And then non-Black people, people of color are also like, what about us? So let's break down some of these definitions and words that so many people are hearing. First, one thing that you distinguish between is intentional versus unintentional racism. Can you break that down a little bit? What's intentional versus unintentional racism? Absolutely. So being that I, I think that's a perfect segue because I just mentioned that the big aha moment that happened to me is when I realized that not all white people are complicit. When you actually, I mean, if you actually Google up the word complicit in the dictionary, you will find that complicit means that it's intentional. Mm. You actually make a plan and it's intentional to harm someone. 
right? And now it doesn't mean that if you're unintentional, it doesn't harm people, but I'll get to that in a second. So intentional racism, I call overt racism. That means it's the kind of racism that pretty much most people are familiar with. You know, like KKK, white nationalists, like skinheads, like we think of those things. These people are, and Donald Trump, you know, like these people are intentional in their racism. Like they say things to incite the base. They, you know, it's all intentional, right? Mm. This is overt racism. Then we have unintentional racism, which I have found most white people operate under. Actually, most white Americans, in my experience, they perpetrate unintentional racism. So unintentional racism is exactly what it sounds like. It's unintentional. And you could even Google this, like unintentional racism. Like it means that you commit a boundary violation with a POC, with a person of color, and you don't even know that you did it, but it does create that very painful effect for POC, which is violence. And so it's violence that is intentional and violence that is unintentional. Mm. And also the, and we'll get to that later, which is that the over racism is connected to grandiose narcissism and that the unintentional racism is connected to um, covert narcissism, covert racism. Mm. So in other words, one of them is more readily seen and everybody gets it. And the other kind of racism, which actually most white people do, is unintentional. They they don't think they're acting in a racist way, but they actually are. And it's it, they don't mean to. They don't want to hurt anyone. They don't want to be racist. They're actually very much against racism and their values. And then they end up acting in a racist way. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe. How? How, how did this happen? Yeah. So that's what that is. Can you give an example of what that might look like? Okay. So... Now we get into racist defense mechanisms. So one way that it it looks is, and is very common, is, and very, the most painful to POC, is denial and intellectualization. Mm. So that would mean that, think about it, if a white person is, let's say that a POC says, you know, what you just did and how you interacted, that was racist. The white person in their mind thinks, I'm not the KKK. I'm not a white nationalist. So I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. That's how they've been taught. Like, I'm not racist because I don't do this. Right. So then when they do that, they're intellectualizing instead of holding space for the emotional pain of the person of color that is telling them what you did was racist. Mm -hmm. The white person feels very triggered and that's called cognitive dissonance. It means that what they think they are and, and morally, you know, upstanding right? That they are a good person that gets questioned. And that's very triggering. It's very triggering. And so the white person goes into cognitive dissonance and they react in a racist defense mechanism, which could be denial and intellectualization. An example is I can't be racist because I don't do X, Y, Z, or that can't be. At that very moment, the white person is failing to hold space for the emotional pain of the POC. And they are essentially emotionally abusing them unintentionally. And they're gaslighting the POC. And Mm. you see that a lot in social media. You can see a lot of the gaslighting behavior. Most white people go into that situation. And initially, when they're first learning that they're acting in unintentionally racist ways, they go into denial. And it's they're going to go into denial, not because they're just such horrible people, but because they, they've they never actually understood their racism. They don't know how their unintentional racism operates. They don't understand they're going into these defense mechanisms. Mm-hmm. They don't see white supremacy within themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't fully understand. And so they're going to deny 
So in other words, they've learned from white people that have told them they're not racist, but they have not actually been around POC who will mm. legitimately tell you you're acting in a racist way. Because mm. technically you're not going to really know you're acting in a racist way unless you're interacting with a POC and they'll tell you like, yeah, this was racist. But mm. that doesn't mean that that POC is now responsible for educating, educating you. That's why yeah. people like myself, the professionals, mm -hmm. that's where we get into that. Mm -hmm. So that's the POC at that point, if they don't do it professionally, essentially it's their responsibility to at least set boundaries with the white person and say, you act in a racist way. This was very painful to me. And, but a lot of POC don't even want to do that. And the reason why POC and a lot of you, a lot of white folks who are listening to this podcast, you'd be like, oh man, like, oh my goodness, this is so true. Right. Because let's say that you have a very deep relationship with a POC and you actually love that person very, very much. And let's say that you didn't even know you're acting in a racist way. Mm -hmm. And then you're feeling like this interpersonal conflict with this POC mm -hmm. and you don't understand. You, maybe initially you're thinking, I'm just having a human interpersonal conflict and that's all that's happening here. Mm -hmm. You don't even realize that you're acting in racist ways you don't even know. That POC often, more often, I'd say really honestly, my experience, I would say nine times out of 10, a POC is not gonna confront a white person on their racism. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you why, because when a POC confronts a white person on their racism, they're going to go into racist defense mechanisms. Yeah. So I'm so already, sorry. I didn't know. I promise I don't see right. color. I didn't mean it. That wasn't my intention. Right. Yeah. So yeah. then white people think because they're not confronted that they couldn't, oh, I've never been confronted on my racism. So I can't possibly mm -hmm. act in a racist way, mm -hmm. but it's not that what's really actually happening for POC is that POC know, they know exactly what a white person is going to do. They know that that white person is going to kick into denial. They, they, they've, how do they know this? Because all white people, they essentially act the same way when they're confronted on the racism. They've never actually done the work. Right. So it's like, they almost always go into denial, go into intellectualization. And so the POC goes, you know what? I don't want to be, I've already been hurt once and I don't want to be hurt twice. Yeah. So let me just disengage. And yeah. then the white person's like, why is this POC trying to get away from me? Why are they, I don't understand that why they're walking away. Is it because, is it because I'm just simply have white skin? They just don't like me. And they just, you know, we're just different people, whatever. No, it's usually because you've acted in a racist way. They don't want to point it out because most white people just go into a state of denial and fail to hold space for the POC's pain that they're enduring. Mm. So, okay. Let's say you're a white person. A POC has said, you know, what you did really felt racist to me. Mm -hmm. What is the healthier response to that? That starts to create more of a healing conversation versus dis more distance. Well, you know, here's what I'm going to say. Cause you knew I was going to have to say something, right? So this really easily gets into performative allyship. When you mm -hmm. ask me what should be said, we get into scripts, right? And scripts tends to lead towards perfectionism, which leads to performative allyship. So I try not to feed into the addiction of performative allyship. The addiction to doing it right. I want to yeah. do it right. Give me my gold star, April. I want to be a good white I person. I know. I know you do. But here's how I'll kind of, <laughs> but here's how I'm going to, here's how I'm going to reframe it. That'll make more sense. Cause you're asking actually a really good question. Like how, how do I, as a white person engage with the POC and they've, they've confronted me, they're practicing assertive communication, told me, I'm, I, first of all, when you say this, when you say perceive most of the time, if a POC says that you did something racist, you did. That you did. Yeah. There, that off the bat, that 
to say perceive, there's that denial right there. Right. So the moment that a white person kicks into that denial, they've already failed. Okay. That's that's a failure to hold space for a mistake. Yep. Big time failure. So it's like the first thing actually that I'd say a white person would need to do is to actually be open to the possibility that you actually could make a major mistake with a POC and act in a racist way. You're mm-hmm. not immune from that. You mm-hmm. were raised in a white supremacist society. There's a long history, especially those listening from America, of white supremacy, all that embedded in families everywhere. Yep. For a white per- this gets into exceptionalism, where a white person thinks they couldn't possibly, they're the exception because they're good people. And it's like, you actually can be a really good person and simultaneously do something racist. Mm-hmm. You really can. So there's this co- there is this cognitive distortion, this black or white thinking. So this is point number two. And in unpacking this question that you just mm-hmm. asked. So the first one is, the first answer to that is entertain the possibility that you're not the exception. Mm-hmm. Step number two is think about the fact that maybe you're going into a cognitive distortion to think that I can't possibly be a good person if I've acted in a racist way. Mm. Yes, you can actually be overall a very good person and still make the major mistake of acting in a racist way for the person of color. And in reality, why wouldn't you make a mistake, Christine? And for the white folks listening, if you're brainwashed into white supremacy, why wouldn't you make that mistake? Yeah, Of course you're going to make that mistake. So we have to come to the terms of, yeah, you know what? I was raised in a white supremacist society. Yeah. I'm probably going to make this mistake. I was brainwashed. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I can't believe that I haven't been brainwashed. So that So it's a very disempowering thing for white people to entertain that they have been brainwashed into racism. Mm. It's very uncomfortable to come to those terms. Again, this brings like this cognitive distortion of, does that mean my whole family's bad? Does that mean I'm evil? Does it mean, no. So that's another thing. A healthy way to approach this is, I'm not necessarily the most evil person on the face of this planet (laughs) because I said something or did something racist, but what I do need to do is understand that what I did really hurt that POC And just like if someone hurt me and I would hope that they hold space for my pain, I need to try to do the same for that POC and Mm. really try to just listen Mm. and, and really believe that like, I'm not the exception. I have been brainwashed. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. That denial is very hard to reckon with because it does contradict the perfection. And what I will tell you is that, and this is kind of, kind of bring back to the perfectionism thing. And it's fascinating to me because Brene Brown was one of my professors and she talks about shame, vulnerability, and perfectionism. And really what she's speaking to, so I'm going to kind of elaborate on yeah, this. Yeah. I know probably a lot of viewers are, of course, very familiar with my old professor. Really what Brene is talking about, and I want to kind of help everyone kind of shift to a different mindset about this. There's a reason why a lot of people really connect with Brene Brown and perfectionism. And the reason for that is because perfectionism is actually connected to narcissism. Mm-hmm. Because a narcissist wants to be perfect in everything that they do. But why? Mm -hmm. The reason why the narcissist wants to be perfect is because they have a false sense of self-esteem coming from, I am only good if I'm perfect. Mm, I'm only lovable if I'm- I'm only lovable. Mm -hmm. I'm only acceptable. Mm -hmm. Uh, People, you know, what am I going to do if I'm socially rejected? So- most people have had an experience where they weren't accepted if they weren't perfect. So then white people in particular, I find that white people have more difficulty holding space for imperfection mm. than people of color, actually. 
And I do believe that that's connected to white supremacy. It's like there is this, all of my white patients and clients, when I say client, I mean my coaching clients and patients are the patients that I treat in psychotherapy. There is this thing with white folks where, I mean, it happens most of the time. They're like, I don't think I've ever been abused as a child though. I mean, my parents really did their very best and I really don't think that they've ever done anything or anything like that. Whereas POC, I find are like, yeah, my mom said some things and was really abusive to me. Mm -hmm. I've actually had a lot more acceptance of parental abuse or neglect or just not getting emotional needs met from POC than white people. White people go straight into cognitive dissonance a lot of the time. Not all white people, but a lot of the white people I work with, they're, they're less accepting and they get into this mode of, I don't want to say that my parents were bad people. Mm. So again, we get into another cognitive distortion, Christine, because it's like saying our parents are just now evil if they've abused or neglected me or I didn't get all my emotional needs. No, it meant they're human beings. They made mistakes and it was painful and traumatizing. Yep. So we need yep. to start seeing, the, I think the most human healing way to see all of this is if you act in a racist way, you've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And that's where you hear a lot of POCs say white people need to hold themselves accountable. What does that mean? Yeah. That means that as a white person, you'll hear POC say, believe, believe us, believe POC when we tell you that you're acting in a racist way. It's hard for white people to get out of that denial. Very difficult. Yeah. It's painful. Triggers a lot of shame. It does trigger a lot of shame. You know, I, what, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the gosh, thousands of people I've worked with at this point. And I never thank you for pointing that out because I see that, especially white women, that perfectionist piece. And let's, let's break down narcissism a little bit, because I think a lot of times people think a narcissist is this evil person, not evil, but like no empathy, totally selfish, toxic. You don't want to get in a relationship with them, run the other way. Definitely don't date them. And so looking at ourselves and going, wait, do I have narcissistic tendencies? That's, that's Mm. almost looking at, am I racist? These are hard things Mm -hmm. for people to look at and own. But if we want to get out of performance allyship, these are the things that we need to start looking at. So how does narcissism, are you talking about narcissism in it, like DSM diagnosis or narcissistic tendencies and behavior? Is there really a difference? Great question. So, so here's the deal about narcissism and you're going to see this, you're going to see this online everywhere. It's going to be kind of confusing because you're going to, you're going to know that you've heard of something called narcissistic personality disorder, um, which is a diagnosis in the DSM, which is the diagnostic and and statistics manual, right? You're going to hear about this. And then you're going to hear a lot of different professionals, whether they be coaches or whether they be psychotherapists or just different people, teachers, whatever, you know, educators, whatnot, talk about narcissism and say narcissistic traits. Mm. And the reason for that is because narcissism really is in a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And A good example of this is to kind of compare, although it's not a neurological disorder like autism, because autism, ADHD, they're neurological disorders. Autism, people who have autism, it's in a spectrum. There is no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And psychotherapists who treated people who have autism, they got frustrated because they're like, you know what? Asperger's and just straight autism, 
because Asperger's that used to be called Asperger, Asperger's is high functioning autism. It's like the people who treated autism were like, you know what? No, this one diagnosis doesn't really represent the diversity mm. of a person's mind with autism. Mm. So they encouraged the, you know, the American Psychological Association to say, we need to make autism a spectrum. That way we have more brevity to, for, for the diversity of a human being, for yeah. their mind. Like we need to be able to help them where they're at. Mm-hmm. So the prompt, so now going back to narcissism. So that was just one example, right? So that's an example of where the DSM was challenged and then, and the reason for that and all that, right? So here's what I propose about narcissism. And I think a lot of narcissist specialists would say the same. Um, and I can only, again, speak for psychotherapists, but I know that a lot of other people who specialize in narcissism who are not psychotherapists, many would probably agree with this as well, which is that narcissism really does run along a spectrum. And so spectrum is in, we have gray area about narcissism. Mm-hmm. Right now, the way narcissism is perceived is that it's only grandiose, it's narcissistic personality disorder and, or antisocial social personality disorder, for example, or borderline personality disorder, and that it can only be these things, and that's it. But that's just not true, because we also know that, guess what? There's something called codependency. Mm-hmm. And everybody talks about how, oh, well, where you have the narcissist, you have the codependent, okay? And the thing is, too, is that I even challenge the original meaning, too, of even codependency. Yeah. Right? And I do this for a good reason. Anytime I challenge definitions, it's because I'm seeing symptoms that contradict the original like definition, yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm like, mm, this doesn't quite fit. Again, back to the autism. They're like, whoa, whoa, this isn't not one size fits all, right? So mm-hmm. I'm looking at narcissism like not one size of narcissism, which is narcissistic personality disorder. It does not fit all. It's just not there. Like I'm seeing narcissism in a variety of shades. So what is really narcissism in and I'll get to codependency in a second, but like, I want to introduce to the listener something you probably never heard before or very, and if you have, it would be very rare. What narcissism really, really is, and I talked a little bit about this on Instagram, the root of the word narcissism is narc. And it's a Greek word that means to numb. Mm. So think about trauma. Mm. What wow. do we try to do when we're traumatized? Numb it. We try to numb our pain, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yep. We try to numb our pain. We also turn to addictions to numb that pain. Okay. So it all is rooted in trauma. Then we try to numb our pain. Now, why do we do that? Because, because it's a survival thing. Because if we're not getting what we need as children, for example, and it starts in childhood, if we don't get what we need, we are going to dissociate, which means we are going to try to separate our mind and our body in our mind. We're going to go, okay, I'm not going to feel. I'm going to emotionally numb myself to survive this and tuck that away someplace where I don't want to look at it again because it was too painful to look at. Yep. So we numb our pain. When we numb our pain, what we do is that we plant the seeds. These are seeds of inauthenticity. And those seeds interfere in building intimacy with other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so narcissism is essentially when people this happens, I mean, a hundred percent, I can't even say nine. I, this happens literally a hundred percent of the time when I assess my patients and clients, narcissism means that you haven't at some form or fashion in your child, there was something in your childhood where you didn't get that need met some type of need. And most of the time at a minimum, there were emotional needs that weren't met. Mm. So then what happens is, is that a narcissist 
tries to get their emotional needs met, that they actually in growing up from childhood to adulthood need to learn to do for themselves. There are certain things we need to do for ourselves. And the narcissist essentially just like a, okay. So a child, if you don't realize the child's a child, what are that greedy child going after breast milk? Like, can't they just like wean off? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, mothers joke all the time, like, oh, this kid, you know, but it's like, but the child's a child. Yeah. They need what they need. You know, people try to like discipline their kids and then go, you know, you get, you know, wean off that milk, do this and this and that, whatever. Right. But the, the reality is that children need what they need and they're not exploitive. They're children. Yeah. But yet people view them as you, 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 you're, you're a brat, you're this and that. No, they're children and they have needs. Yes. So they're viewed as adults. So a lot of adults who of course struggle with narcissism view a child as an adult and they think you're being greedy. You're not respecting my boundaries and you just need to back off. Well, when that happens, when a, a parent goes through, for example, caregiver burnout, they're exhausted and they themselves haven't resolved their own narcissism haven't gotten treatment, haven't gotten help, healing for their childhood wounds, right? There's a cycle of abuse. Yeah. They then emotionally could, they could like, for example, maybe they may not physically harm their child, but they will emotionally like distance themselves. Like I'm going to be detached. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a detached parenting style because there are, of course, those four, you know, parenting styles. And so it's like they, they go, well, I'm going to detach and I'm going to teach this child. And I'm going to set boundaries, so I'm going to do it. But actually what that does, it creates, it actually is traumatizing to a child. Mm. And so when a child realizes that, you know what, my parents, they're detaching from me, it must be my fault because they're telling me I'm a problem and a burden. That child doesn't get their needs met. And what happens is they go, you know what, I'm going to numb out this pain. Mm. I'm just going to survive. I'm going to tell, I I don't actually need that so that I can have affection from my family. I'm going to tell myself that I don't, I'm going to numb out that pain because that way I can get along better and and I can reduce conflict with my parents. I want affection. And if I'm going to get it, I have to numb myself out and act like it doesn't hurt and not ask anything and, Mm -hmm. and stop being a burden to them. Yeah. Because clearly I'm a burden. It's all my fault. Yeah. And if you people pleaser and overachiever or whatever. Yeah. Yep. And those little seeds get planted where people then lose self-esteem in their childhood because they're like, well, I don't deserve to have my needs met. This is when this happens. And that's when those seeds of narcissism. So what I want to teach everyone is that narcissism is not really what you think it is. Cause actually I would say that almost every single American struggles with narcissism, Yeah, a shade of it. And it's, and that's scary to people like, what April, that's impossible. Yes, it is. Because we have a, ab- the truth is, and it's the ugly truth, Christine. I mean, as Americans, we absolutely have a cycle of abuse in our society. Yep. And it starts at home. And, and it's like, that's why it's so important for parents to get healing because they're going to pass that on to their children and their children are going to pass. And we always wonder like, why can't we heal society? Because it all starts at home. It all starts with And so yeah. Yeah. what we learn growing up is that our needs aren't important. What we need doesn't matter. And that's now we transition to codependency because that's how the codependency gets started. So, and so, you know how they say that codependency is sort of like a reverse role in a way. It's yeah. like saying that, like basically codependency says, the codependent does not get their own needs met. Their primary motivation is to help the other person get their needs met. Mm-hmm. Now that happens because in childhood, the child will feel like a burden. And so it's reversed. So it's like, this is when we get into these reverse parenting roles where the parent actually is a narcissist. They haven't gotten their emotional needs met. They then detach from the child. The child doesn't get their emotional needs met. 
And then it, the cycle kicks again. So it gets, yep. and when you read literature about narcissism, about the origin of, nar- of narcissism, they say, oh, even in the DSM, they say, oh, it, it kind of goes intergeneration for family, family, but how? How? Yeah. I'm telling you how. This is yeah. exactly how. So it kind of goes narcissist, codependent, narcissist. Like it, that, that's kind of the, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And so the codependent then goes, my feelings don't matter. I, I mean nothing. I'm going to numb my pain and I don't want to get my needs met because my needs are going to cause problems. It's going to cause mm. conflict. I'm being greedy. I'm being selfish because the parents are now teaching the kid, back off. You keep on asking me for something and I, you're bothering me. Right. Get out of here. Right. When in reality, that child actually at every moment knee has a legitimate need. Yeah. They're not being greedy and the parent is treating the child like they're an adult. And that is just not true. Oh, this is the best uh, like psychological explanation of narcissism that I've ever, ever heard. And I see this over and over and over again. And this is such a, this is such the key part to my work is the childhood wounds and the, the not numbing, the getting out of the numbing and the defense mechanisms and the distraction and the dissociation and all the ways which we think that we're avoiding our wounds, but we're just perpetuating them. Um, so I'd love, let's, I'd love to circle this back to racism because one thing that I've heard you, you say today, and then I've heard you say in other interviews is that a lot of what's happening with white people, especially is that our own narcissism is getting in the way of actually being able to do the healing work around racism. Can you unpack that one? That's a big, absolutely. Absolutely. So so one might wonder, like, why can't a, if they can unpack their narcissism in a different way, why can't they do it with racism? So this is the thing, and this is going to unpack this. Okay. And it's hard for white people to believe, but it's the truth. White people were essentially taught how to address things. They, they basically had two sets of rules. And think about it. We have a history in America of segregation, right? Mm. So it's two different rules of socialization. See, white people are under the impression that they've ta- they've been taught universal socialization. That's where the cognitive dissonance comes into play. Because mm-hmm. white people are like, well, I couldn't possibly be racist and harmful because I've been taught how to be a good person. No, 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 no. That's not what you were taught. You mm-hmm. were taught, to, especially if you, you grew up with mostly white folks, you have been taught to socialize with white people and you have not been ta- how, taught how to socialize with POC. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, is that white people... When they act in narcissistic ways, as in acting in a racist way, there's so there's two different types of narcissism. So this is where the fine line is. Mm. So they themselves have learned narcissism in their families, right? Because I just talked about that family origin stuff going on, right? Trauma and all that childhood trauma. So they've already been taught narcissism, okay? And they can act in a narcissistic way, of course, in their white families, okay? And for people listening, as you're listening to April, because I don't want people to get tripped out by the word narcissism. I really want you to own this. When she says that, think of the root word, numbing. Numbing. It's how you numbed yourself. It's trauma. Right. So so the numbing, so that people will really kind of feel settled in too, the numbing means you have a lack of empathy. Now, why would you have a lack of empathy? Because when you numb your, when you numb your own emotional pain, you distance yourself from yourself. Yeah. When you distance yourself from your own pain, you're not going to be able to hold emotional space for other people in a way 
that is the most healthy. Yeah. You might be, have sympathy. You might feel sorry for someone. Yeah. You might go into people pleasing or rescuing or saviorism, which we'll also talk about. But that true holding space, empathy in a healthy way, from, from my own personal experience, is impossible to do when I can't do it for myself. It's, it's Correct. impossible. And that gets into, and we'll get to all this nursing, but I just want to say, because that beautifully segues into centering. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of white people are taught by influencers. I mean, like 99.9% of the time. And I want to break this down for you to help educate you. Because what POC influencers on, on Instagram and everywhere else, a million followers, whatever, listen to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're incorrect when they say you need to decenter yourself. So I know it seems like, but April, that makes sense. Decenter myself. I'm being selfish. I'm being narcissistic. Shouldn't I decenter myself? No. Mm-hmm. A narcissist actually can't legitimately, authentically center themselves because they've numb their pain out. Mm-hmm. That's why they're going someplace else to exploit the emotional pain of some. They're, they're there to exploit someone else's emotions because they can't center themselves to feel. Mm-hmm. So then they go after someone else yep. externally. So the way to combat narcissism is actually to feel, to not numb oneself of pain, which means that you got to hold space for that shame, not dismiss it, not run around, do something else. Like you said, performative allyship, that's going to be a trauma response wanting to go into performative allyship. And you'll know a lot of people also wonder, like, how do you go into performative allyship? Well, it's because it means that you're not holding space for your own emotional pain. When you just immediately act but you're not the first, if the first thing that you do is dismiss your emotional pain and go straight into acting, you're doing performative allyship. Mm -hmm. And and of course it can manifest in a variety of ways. And as a white person, when you're in these influencer spaces, what do you hear? You need to act. White people need to act. And you are just the most racist, evil person if you don't act right now. Okay. But if you don't hold space as a narcissist for your emotional pain, you're just going to be performative And then it's sort of like the honeymoon phase, kind of similar to domestic violence. Then you're just going into the honeymoon phase. I'm just going to act however, I'm going to perform for this victim so that it doesn't look bad and I can get into their good graces again. But that's not authentic, is it? Nope. That's not authentic. (laughs) And it doesn't last. And that's why white people repetitive, but I've done all this stuff and I'm still, I don't understand why I'm still acting in racist ways. That's because you don't know that you're actually performing and and you wouldn't think you're performing because that's exactly what the majority of POC influencers will tell you to do. What they, a lot of these POC influencers don't realize that they're actually asking you to perform. And why would they do that? And I'm going to break that down because think about it. For those of you, again, who are fairly trauma informed and for those who are not, you're about to get a little less, another little lesson right here, which is that when we have been hurt by someone and betrayed and we haven't healed from that, what do we do, Christine? Let's say in a romantic relationship, then we tell that person that we just met, we put those, what do we do? We put conditions, Mm -hmm. we put conditions in the relationship. And I call those the rules of Mm anti-racism. Well, POC, you're going to start putting conditions on white people because they can't be trusted, which is true unless they've, in my viewpoint, achieved racism recovery. They can't necessarily be trusted to not act in racist ways. That's just, it's not a morality. It's just, that needs to happen. But so I think, well, we can trust them if they just act in certain ways and follow these rules. Mm. But that doesn't work either. As I just explained, like you can continue to act in racist ways, even though you're following all these rules, right? right. So POC, why would they do that? Because they ha- are the victims of racial trauma. Yeah. And they themselves have not. So their work that they're teaching is not trauma informed. It's actually trauma driven. And a lot of people have a hard time holding mm. space for that. But, but, but believe me, 
I remember I treated black folks. Yeah. Treating their racial trauma. I can tell you hands down, these folks are operating. They are literally putting information out there. that is driven by unresolved trauma and white people, since they have acted in racist ways and they can't tell the difference between what is like trauma informed and what is not, they just pretty much take everything they say, hook, line and sinker. And, and then it just actually makes things worse. Cause then if remember, if they don't, okay, if I don't follow the rules, I'm a bad person again. And then they just goes back to childhood again. Yeah. And they stay narcissistic and that, then this whole cycle. And then on social media, this is where you're going to see POC and, and, and white people going back and forth in the comments section and they're fighting and isn't that because guess what? You have a whole bunch of people that are traumatized with complex trauma. So white people have complex trauma, which means complex trauma basically means it complex PTSD means that a person has been usually in their childhood, but it can be in the adulthood too, repetitively exposed to things that are traumatizing. Mm. Okay. And POC have been repetitively traumatized by a sea full of white people who don't know they act in racist ways. Mm. So that's complex trauma too. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to set boundaries with white people by giving them conditions. Like I don't, this is their, this is, they're like, follow these rules, follow these 10 steps and you're anti-racist. And I'm like, doesn't work that way because if you give them these rules, guess what happens if, if they follow the rules and they still act racist, then they're in a state of now, but I can't be a racist because I follow all your rules. And I've done the work. I've read the books. I've, oh, I've yeah. read the books and I've done this. So I'm not a racist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a racist. And it's like, they don't realize that the POC don't realize that what they're teaching. And so wh- why also would white people believe all this stuff? Because all the POC are backing it up. Now, why would they back it up? Is it because April's just an outlier and totally off? No, what it is, mm-hmm. is that we got a lot of people that are operating in trauma. Yeah. When you teach people from an unhealed heart and it has something to do with trauma, you're going to misinform them. It's not going to be heart centered. And of course, and this is where we get into performative allyship because I talked about this on IGTV the other day, actually for the first time. Mm. Performative allyship is an addiction. That makes so much sense. That feels because, so true to me. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Because it's addictive because we, this goes back to when I just talked about the childhood stuff, because growing up, if we didn't get our emotional, like if we were like had parents that were detached and like, you know, neglected, emotional, neglected and whatnot, and we get codependent, codependency is connected to addiction. Mm-hmm. Now that's a standard that that's not something April made up. That's just like, I mean, actually that's just bottom line. The roots of codependency were all about the, who is the codependent? The one who is addicted to the narcissist. But again, I believe a codependent is also a narcissist because they're trying to numb their pain. What do, how does a codependent numb their pain? By being addicted to, for example, an over narcissist, yep. someone who's grandiose. Yep. Now, why is that? Because guess what? They feel disempowered. Yep. Codependency is about proximity to power. Someone who struggles with codependency does not feel powerful. They do mm. not feel a sense of personal empowerment. So what do they do? They become addicted to someone who it looks like they're a very powerful person. That's the over narcissist. Okay. These influencers, and I, I mean, I'm blowing the lid right on this. I mean, I talked about this on IGTV the other day. Some of these influencers, I can't say all of them, they're like this, but some of these influencers are very abusive to white people in these anti-racism spaces. And what white people don't realize what they're doing is, yes, it's true. They are perpetrating racism. Yes, they are. But they're doing it in a codependent kind of way. 
Yeah. Usually through saviorism, because anytime you kick into saviorism, you're going into codependency. And remember that codependency goes back to childhood. Now, why would you even be addicted to that? Why would you be addicted to pleasing the over narcissist, which is in this case, the super mega popular influencer that appears to be unapologetic and yeah, I'm just going to say it takes no shit. Like yeah. this person seems so powerful and you are just weak and and you don't know any better. And oh my gosh, you just, you just bend the knee, right? Yeah. You're just yeah. like, I'm going to bend Whatever the knee. You you say, Whatever you say, I bow to you. You're the expert. I give away yes. my power to you. Yeah. I give away my power to you mm-hmm. and I should, because I'm white and I'm I bad. need to, because yeah. that's a, I, I have to, because I'm white. It's my obligation. It's my duty. Mm-hmm. So this, this is actually really unfortunate because what's happening is, so white people then, because that's stuff that they don't know, they don't understand they're acting in racist ways. They do basically regress to that child state of, I don't really understand. I don't know. So they're very innocent and in a way, and they, even though they're perpetrating unintentional racism, they actually don't know what they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. So they get in this space. And again, not all anti-racism influencers do this, but there are many who are very influential who do. Yeah. And what they do is they abuse the white people. They tell them to sit down, shut up, just listen. They gaslight them because they're like, well, I deserve to gaslight you because you're white and racist and you need to get a taste of your own medicine. Yeah. Well, you know, my grandma taught me in Texas, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Mm -hmm. Abuse can't stop abuse. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, is that, and this is really a trip, but it's just the truth. Some of these influencers then become, they become the overt narcissist, even though they themselves have been the victim of racism to white people, they then become both the victim. Cause remember every narcissist has also always been usually a victim of something. Yeah. So then for some reason, people think that, a, for example, that a black influencer who does anti-racism can't possibly be a narcissist because they're the ones, they're the victim. But this is when white people kick into saviorism. Oh, but this person couldn't possibly hurt me because I'm white and I'm the racist and I'm the one with white privilege. So there's no way. Oh, I'm now I'm trying to say I'm making up excuses and they teach me that I make excuses. No, 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 no. Don't get it twisted. Mm. Don't get it twisted. If a POC influencer is abusive to you and you feel very disempowered and you're there to learn and they're there to teach you, then that's abusive. And it takes you back to that stage of where now we're getting into trauma bonding. Yep. We're getting into trauma bonding. And now we get into enmeshed relationships on Instagram and other forms of social media. And now that influencer is actually the overt narcissist. And why wouldn't they be? The POC has been through a lot of emotional pain being the victim of racism. What are they going to do to survive? Numb out the pain. Yeah. How do they do it? Abuse these white folks. Mm. So then they, they, guess what? The white people become the narcissistic supply. And for the white person who's struggling with codependency, the POC becomes their narcissistic supply. So they're each other's narcissistic supply. Uh. And this this is where (laughs) the enmeshment and this, I told you I was going to open up a can of worms. No, and this, this is, is just so, it's like, oh, it's just, it's oh, a relief. It it's a relief to talk about. It's it's just yeah. a relief to talk about. Sorry, I interrupted you with my. No, you're fine. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, I blew the can of worms literally the other day. Cause I, when I teach on Instagram, I, I think about it. I mean, I can't, this is a complex topic. I mean, yeah, I got to break it down in little p- bits. Yeah. I mean, this is. My God, this is my life of work. I mean, this is, I'm going to be doing this work to the day I die. So this is like, this is very complex stuff. It's, you cannot just read Ibrahim Kendi's book. I mean, I like Ibrahim Kendi. 
I, I think he's an amazing historian, but I'm sorry, bruh, but that book is not going to help white people stop their racism. It'll yeah. definitely inform them. It'll definitely make them aware. Yeah. But it's not going to stop their racist behavior. Well, Psychologically, it runs so much deeper. Yeah. And, and white people learning about racism just from that more performative allyship or just I'm doing the work and I'm reading, I'm following influencers isn't going to heal POC's trauma either. No, it's not actually. And and that's when white people go into saviorism. So it's like, you know, you were talking about white fragility and everyone's running around throwing white fragility, you know, I'll read, you know, Robin DeAngelo. Again, I have nothing personally against Robin DeAngelo, but what does really concern me is the misinformation that's being taught because it doesn't help the cause. So Robin DeAngelo does talk about race defense mechanisms in her book, but really it gets down to, and you'll hear Robin DeAngelo do this. You will hear Jane Elliott do this. You will hear so you, you'll hear all this like anger and frustration, all these white people, they're so hard headed. They just, but what did I just teach you? It yeah. goes all the way back to my original four months. I was like, oh, what am I doing wrong? Or I need to hold space for my own pain. Maybe I'm projecting my own pain, racial trauma onto these white people. Yeah. What's going on? Okay. It's deeper. So it's not so much. So then it is perceived as complicit, but it's a, but it is a trauma response. Yeah that's been normalized. So then it appears complicit. So white fragility, and actually I love that Dr. Romani, who is a narcissist specialist such as myself, um, she actually just recently published, I think like the other day on YouTube about can, it could have been to be a narcissist. She started talking about how, which I love, I'm so glad. Dr. Romani was saying that a narcissist can get very fragile. I was like, yes, yes. Yes, yes, speak. I'm like, Romney, let the truth come through. I'm just like, (laughs) yes, you know, I'm like, yes, preach. And so like, exactly. So what do you think white fragility is? It's Mm -hmm. narcissism, but that narcissism is rooted in trauma and it's shame-based PTSD because a narcissistic narcissist is going to go into a narcissistic rage or they're going to, all of it's triggered by shame. So like, again, we're looking at narcissism numbing. Yeah. What are you trying to numb? Yeah. That emotional pain. And how did you learn how to do it? In childhood, you learned yeah. like how to detach from yourself, emotional, yeah. emotional numbing. Yeah. So when a white person is interacting, so the, def- so here's the thing, the defense mechanisms are a way to emotionally numb. Yep. Well, I, I saw myself go through this when, mm-hmm. after the murder of George Floyd, which was trauma to witness Absolutely. Secondary trauma. Absolutely. And then, you know, having a platform, being in a couple IG groups and getting a lot of, well, what you said, abuse and just comments made from mostly black women to white women. And, Mm -hmm. but I just was like, I have to take it because I'm, I'm in my white supremacy and my white fragility and I haven't been as inclusive as I should be. You need to be humbled in other words, Yes, I need to to put my place. I need to be humbled. I just need to hold space and they get to say whatever they want to say with no boundaries because, you know, they've been oppressed. Like that's, you know, the the thought that I was – and I found myself shaking, sad, angry, and Mm -hmm. luckily, you know, my – with my – I have my own awareness and I'm like, I'm triggered. I'm – my own trauma is triggered right now. I'm going to stop reading books. I'm going to stop – looking at Instagram, I'm going to get my pillow and my beater tube and my journal and my box of Kleenex and use my tools and go into my trauma and feel my feelings. What is this reminding me of? What is happening inside of me? Cause I want to 
respond not from a react. And I did at first respond from a more reactive place of what do I do to make it better? Oh my God, what do I do to make it better? But honestly, was that reaction more about me than actually making it better? Yeah. Cause I was uncomfortable. Yeah. I was uncomfortable and I wanted it to be better. And it wasn't until I started doing my own work and mm-hmm. I, I said, you know what? I'm not an anti-racism expert. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just keep helping people with their trauma. I'm going to look at what this is bringing up inside of me. I'm going to have lots of conversations with my POC friends and look for the healing. And then I found you and I was like, okay, mm. <laughs> okay. Mm. Like this is, this, this feels more like an authentic, actual healing direction than a reactive. Cause I don't consider myself an activist. I consider myself more a teacher, a healer, and a student of life. Activism isn't what I came here to do. Mm-hmm. Education. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's where I would love to take this conversation, both for, we can talk about for both for white people and for people of color. Because there's so many people saying, do the work, do the work, do the work. Let's mm-hmm. talk about like what that actually means. How do we do the work so that we can heal? Not just so that we can perform and put band-aids on things and like look better and get out of our own feelings of discomfort, but how do we mm-hmm. do the work so we actually heal racism? Because coming back to what you said a while ago, racism is a mental illness, not a morality mm-hmm. issue. Absolutely. And it's like, well, you know, it's exactly. And the thing is, is that when, what you're going to find, and you can see this across the spectrum of narcissism, whether it be racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, that narcissism will lead to amoral actions if unchecked and unhealed Mm. and can Mm. some of it's intentional, right? Discrimination and some of it's unintentional discrimination, which we talked about, right? The covert and the overt. So I want to kind of start this off by saying that I watched a video with Angela Davis the other day, uh, Afropunk interviewed her um, on YouTube, and she was talking about radical self-care. Mm. Now, come on. Most people know who Angela Davis is. She was an awesome, awesome civil rights activist. I mean, my God, you know, mm. I look up to her big time. And I love what she was saying. She said, you know, when I first became an activist, I really didn't understand the importance of self-care, radical self-care. And she said, what I'd really like to see more of is yes, do your activism, but do radical self-care so that you don't burn out. Mm -hmm. Because basically like activism is cool, but if you burn out, you're not going to actually really fully make the kind of change that you want to make. Yep. Because you need to be able to go the distance when you do an activism. Yeah. So a lot of people um, like Erica Gardner Bless her heart. I mean, she died. I mean, she had her child and then she died. And she was pushing and pushing and pushing because of her father's death. I mean, she was just pushing and pushing and pushing. And there's so many black women that do not practice self-care when they're doing activist work. Mm -hmm. And then that's the reason why so many black women, of course, black women have high mortality rate, maternal mortality rate, which is literally Eric Gardner, like that, that is literally what happened to her. She literally is the statistic, unfortunately, of black maternal mortality. Very, very sad. And so she did all this activist work when she was pregnant and then she died. Mm. I wish I was her therapist and I would have like kept tabs on her, but she may have resisted that. Right. And so there, let me get to that. So let, because this, she's a, you know, Angela Davis is right. Mm-hmm. 
because that self-care has to happen when you're in activism. Now, why wouldn't, Christine, why wouldn't people do that? Because there is a ideological underpinning within activist spaces that if you practice radical self-care, you're being selfish, you don't care, you're being narcissistic if you practice self-care. That's just simply not true. And I'm just going to say it. That's actually rooted in codependent thinking. Remember what I said, like codependency is I'm going to be the martyr. I'm going to be the one that sacrifices. So, you know, within the healthcare profession, activism, public service, there's a lot of codependency going down. And it is very narcissistic to the desire to be needed, to be wanted, to serve, to be the martyr. But the reality is, is that narcissism will burn you out. Mm. It'll Mm. burn you out. Mm -hmm. And so... At the end of the day, when it comes to activism, the way to heal is to recognize that codependency, recognize childhood trauma, how it's manifesting. Because when you're doing activist work, especially when it comes to anti-racism, then the person is like, especially if you're POC, it's like these white people are a threat, which is true. But I always teach POC that like you need to discern which white people have the potential for change and which ones do not. The ones, at least at the immediate moment, that don't have the potential to change are the ones that do it intentionally. Like they straight up, again, KKK Mm -hmm. and all that, like Mm -hmm. they're doing intentionally. They're not going to change anytime soon. Mm. Now, the white person who actually wants to do better, POC are getting very frustrated because they're like, they're saying, we'll do this, this, and this. White White people go, yes, 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 we'll do it. But you're still acting racist. Do this, this, and this now. Yes, 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 we'll do that. Yes, 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 we'll do this. But you're still acting racist. <laughs> okay, and then the POC is like, I think these white people are just a goner. This has got to be, this is, this, it must be a lifetime of work. Yeah. <laughs> these white people won't stop. And I'm like, boo, it's not that it's a lifetime of work. You don't understand the psychology of racism. You don't understand the psychology of the perpetrators of racism. You don't mm. understand their narcissism. So then you're burning out. So POC go through what's called racial battle fatigue. Yeah. And and I'm going to bring this back to white folks and and their own fatigue they experience as well. We're going to talk about that because that's important, I think. You you, you game for that? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm seeing it with many of my my white audience and friends. They, you know, George Floyd happened. It was like a two-week crash course and then burnout. And then now I'm more bad because I said I was going to do good, but I don't know what to do. And I'm burned out and I'm overwhelmed and I'm really triggered. But now I have my white tears and I feel guilty for my white tears and I I can't feel bad for myself. And it's just, yeah. 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 It's like every little thing that you do must be wrong. You're not allowed to be white and quote fragile. You're not allowed to have feelings. You're supposed to detach from yourself, be numb because you're white. It's like, no, that doesn't work. Well, and then I think, well, people of color have been dealing with this their whole life. This right. has just been, you know, a month of deep dive for me. Shame on me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so there's a belief that we can build compassion by by experiencing similar torture mm. or even slightly similar torture. Mm. It's like saying the way to cultivate empathy is to be ab- to abuse someone. It's like that's not the way to cultivate empathy. That's actually not even that's the way to cultivate narcissism. Mm-hmm. Cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. That's not real empathy. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it just, all it does put white people in that codependent state. And then it's perceived externally like they're compliant. And it's like, no man, because white people deep inside and all of my clients tell me this deep inside, they're scared to death and they don't know what's going on. They don't know. They're just like, I just need to be quiet. 
And that's all we white people know. Let me be quiet because every little thing that I do is going to be racist and I'm going to look bad and I'm going to get attacked. And then POC go, yeah, but you shouldn't even be afraid to be attacked. We're attacked all the time. You, If you care at all, you'll be open to attack too. Now, let me tell you something. POC need to set boundaries with white people. Mm. And that's why I have that upcoming you know, webinar on Crowdcast about how to set effective boundaries with covert racists. Okay. And that is for POC. Mm-hmm. Because POC do need to learn how to identify covert racism that is very, very subtle in order to set effective boundaries. Mm. So back to the burnout though. So when POC do not set effective boundaries with covert white racists who have, again, that unresolved trauma, and they're projecting that onto POC via racism, right? Get their childhood traumas are triggered, plus they're taught. So white people are taught right. that it's normal and acceptable to violate a POC's boundaries. Mm. This is on a deep subconscious level that they're taught this. Can you give an example of that? Because I really want people to see how they may do this. This is when, for example, a good violation is actually sort of like the same example that we talked about from the beginning, immediately dismissing they couldn't possibly act in a racist way. Got it. They're literally taught by their white families. Oh no, you're not racist. Right. They're, that's, they're just being overreactive. Right. So they literally watch their parents dismiss a POC and then, or they hear about it at home and then they're like, oh yeah, I'll just, if anybody, anybody calls me a racist, I mean, that can't possibly be, let me dismiss them now. So they're taught that they're taught these racist defense mechanisms too. So one thing I've heard a lot is white people talking to POC friends and saying, but I've never seen your color. I don't see color. Is that an example of a boundary violation, a statement like that? Yep. Yep. Because what's happening is that you're literally, it's like the other person doesn't exist. Yeah. It's like, how can you, you you see me, I'm a woman. Like you can't not notice that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's like saying you don't even exist. Mm. And that's a boundary violation. Okay. And a boundary violation is whenever uh, someone, so like, so and that's, I mean, if you say that someone doesn't exist, that's a narcissistic behavior. That's a total lack of empathy. Right. Because you, their lack of empathy means no connection. But what I meant by that, April, is I just see the soul. You know, I don't see people. And <laughs> <laughs> right. That's usually right. the next defensive. And this is right. another thing I see. I see a lot of spiritual yeah. bypassing. Spiritual bypassing, right? As a, so, as a defense mechanism yeah. to, to racism. Right. Like, no, I Yeah, spiritual mm-hmm. bypassing. So, spirit, so bypassing, and I, and I talked about this the other day on Instagram too, what is bypassing? Bypassing means, like on a really raw psychological level, bypassing means that you're using something to dismiss the feelings that you have. And in turn, it then the consequence is you dismiss the feelings of the other person. That's what bypassing really is. So yeah. if you use, for example, the term spiritual bypassing, the white person doesn't actually realize if they're actually, they're actually dehumanizing themselves, which then in turn dehumanizes another human being. Right. Because then they're saying that their spirit, that's, that they're then... And unfortunately, this gets in a whole other camera worms, and we probably don't have time for that. But essentially, what it means is that this this is when we get into cults and spirituality and things like that. Yeah. Sometimes people, of course, are spiritually abused. And so in that sense, actually, when a white person says that, they're both spiritually abusing the POC and they're emotionally gaslighting them. Mm. And they don't even know that they just are, that they learned an emotional abuse tactic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they learned that in their spiritual spaces. And now they're now doing that to POC. Well, yeah. And I will tell you, and this is very controversial, mm-hmm. but I, 
you know, I have never said this on a podcast, but this is also a fairly recent thing. And it's going to shock a lot of people when I say this. And I do agree with Sean King that Christianity was whitewashed. There's a lot of controversy about that. And yeah. people believe that Sean King just wants, you know, white Jesus to, you know, people believe that he just wants to destroy, you know, a bunch of churches and things like that. People are really taking it to the extreme, but that's an example actually where POC in America and other countries, their bodies were dismissed because everything was whitewashed. So like history is whitewashed, like yeah. spirituality is white. All you see is white people, white things. And some people say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with seeing Christianity or any kind of spirituality? Wouldn't you want to see like someone who looks like you? But it goes deeper than that, than just having like an image of a different person. Because the question is, how come we don't see any black Jesus? How come we don't see any, any representations of Jesus primarily in the United States that aren't white? Yeah. Well, the reason for that is because it's white supremacy, because if you, because it's actually a very powerful thing to see yourself, you know, in spirituality, in your skin color and you're represented, it's a powerful thing. Yeah. And that is, and then unfortunately, when that's happens over time, you think that's perfect. Right. You think that's perfect. And so this gets into a whole other can where basically no, for those that are listening, if you start Googling that stuff, you're, it's hard to accept. It's just all of these are very painful realities to, yeah. to hold space for. It creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. And that's why people are giving Sean King a hard time because they're actually both POC and whites are, they're reacting in cognitive dissonance. Yeah, It's hard to hold space for that, but it is the truth. And if you do enough digging and you get all the facts, not opinion, facts about history, yeah, people are going to find out like, whoa, this is true. Right. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I grew up in Texas. I don't know, April, if you had to take a year of Texas history, but I did I in did. school. And <laughs> we didn't, Texas yeah, I didn't learn about Juneteenth. I didn't learn that Texas was the last state to really emancipate slaves. Like I didn't, I had ne like never learned that. And it was only a few well, my years mother ago. Taught me. Mm. My mother taught me, even though she's white, I was very fortunate. Mm -hmm. My mother loves history mm. and my white mother actually told, taught me about Juneteenth when I was a child. Mm. I was lucky. Mm. Um, not that many white people who have black kids will actually like teach their children about black history too within Texas history. But yeah. she loves history and she's a total history buff. Mm. So she like, but, but yes, exactly. In Texas history, we don't, we grew up, you know, and we didn't see anything about Juneteenth in school or anything like that in Texas. And yeah, exactly. But I mean, but but anyway, but, but back to the burnout. So like POC are going to experience racial battle fatigue when they're dealing with white people and they believe that they're allies. Cause, because the problem is that POC, I, this is my belief. I think that as POC, we need to have a higher standard. So I'm, for me in this work that I do, I'm trying to raise the standard of what true allyship looks like, what true solidarity looks like. Mm. True solidarity to me is that healing. It means that if you've gotten healing, psychological healing, you are going to have more intimate, connected relationships. If you haven't, there's going to be more potential for conflict and betrayal. And so the thing is, is that I like what we in society have unfortunately overall expected of white people is just throw money our way, follow these rules. And if you do it consistently for a whole life, and that means you're anti-racist. Mm. And the way that I believe, I have a totally different viewpoint. I'm like, no, we need to stop the performative allyship. White people need to get healing. And also POC need to be setting boundaries and they need to be able to identify when a white person hasn't gotten healing and is going to kick into performative allyship because 
every POC is going to know what I'm talking about when they hear this is when you trust a white person and they're following all the rules. And it seems like, I mean, they're connected. You're talking to them, things that you get close to them. Then they up and say something racist and they dismiss you. Then you're like, how the hell did that happen? Mm. Because they haven't healed yet. So they're going to say that. So, so like what I'm saying is POC who are listening do not think that if they follow a bunch of rules that they're not going to act in a racist way, and they are. And it's not because they have white skin. It's because they need to heal. Mm. And when they heal, they're not going to go into those racist defense mechanisms. Now, white folks, white folks, this is where they burn out that I see the most on social media. Going after other white folks. Yeah. And why do they do that? Because POC say, you know what? One of the rules is you need to go after other white folks and hold them accountable because we don't want to burn out. We're tired. Hashtag, we're tired which I want to hold space for that. Like, of course they're tired. Of course they're tired of white supremacy, but I'm sorry. White people going after white people is not going to end racism. Yeah. So then when white people do this, white people then become obsessed. And this is when they become addicted to performative allyship. They're like, I want to be perfect. I want to be the perfect white ally. I don't want to, I, I want to do my best because I'm a bad person because I've acted in racist ways in the past. So then it becomes, so think about like, if something, if you're following rules and it can't help you, you're going to continue to go after 2.0, 3.0. So what white people do, and you know this is true, Christine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you've done it. I'm right? sure I have Which whatever is, it is. I'm sure you know I have. what I'm talking about when you go, I'm going to follow this one influencer. Oh, I don't understand this. I don't get it. And then we may need to follow another one. And maybe I'll get some more insight. And maybe I'll follow another one. So then it's like 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 5.0. You're trying to get the most perfect anti-racism rules possible to stop your racism. And then it's like, wait a minute, I'm crashing and burning no matter what I do. You know what? It's hopeless. This is a lifetime of work. Now I understand what POCs say because I, I can't stop my racism. Mm. I'm see- So you see how one could easily, easily fall into that trap, right? Yep. Very easy to do that, right? Especially if you don't know about the psychology of racism, very easy to fall in that trap. And, and so, so then I'll tell you what happens. Then when white people, let me tell you what white people do when they come across my page especially if they've come from anti-racism. If they're not trauma-informed, they come across my page, they're going to go, this black therapist, she's she's bypassing social justice work. Mm. She's actually using mental health to bypass the social injustice of racism. Because that's, I, I mean, that's, liter- that's literally what they think. Mm-hmm. POCs sometimes think the same thing. They go, what is this black, she's a traitor. Mm. no, you're really looking at it on a very superficial level. Just take in my content and then let it marinate and you'll understand exactly. You'll learn a hell of a lot. Let me yeah. tell you. Because yeah. the more you understand the psychology of racism as a POC, the more you'll be able to set boundaries with white people. And white people, the more you learn about the psychology of racism, the more you learn about yourself and the importance of healing so that you can truly be, a, for real, a good white ally, mm-hmm. an actual, legit, authentic white ally in true solidarity. And, and that's going to, and so what white people will do, so I know I'm bouncing around here, but POC will say, go jump those other white people. I'm exhausted. You need to do this. This is part of reparations. No, it doesn't work. And people are going to find out the hard way. They're going to crash and burn. Like everybody does. By the time they get to my page, they crash and burn and go, I did all this stuff and it never worked. (laughs) And now I'm coming here and it makes sense to me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. most white people, because the way Instagram is with analytics, you are going to, if you type in anti-racism, the first thing you're going to come across is a bunch of influencers telling you a bunch of rules. And then you'll think, oh, I'm home now. This is where I need to learn. Nope. 
Mm. So, and I'm going to tell you the reason why that happens too, is because again, Instagram is its own little addiction. Yep. And so it's a perfect place for performative allyship to become addicted in performative allyship to be the perfect person, perfect white ally. And then it's like, here's what I don't do, Christine. And this is major. This is like probably the most epic of stuff that I'm getting ready to drop, even though I've already dropped quite a few little yeah, nuggets I'm like, here. how can you top yourself? <laughs> I'm going to add some more nuggets, which is that the big Uber nugget is if you're a fan of sobriety and weaning off any kind of addiction, you're really going to like my site. Cause you know mm-hmm. why I don't have a million followers? Cause I don't, cause I don't give a, I don't teach performative allyship. Yeah. You're, you're calling people forward to do the deep work. Right. So yeah. I, what white people, so this is really, really unfortunate. Well, white, white people don't know what they're actually doing. And what, this is why these POC become big because what they're doing is they're actually feeding the white people exactly what they want, which is performance. Yeah. They're giving them their addiction. And the, and the white people don't even know. That's why it's hard for white people to leave some of these influencers because then they're going to have to wean off. Mm-hmm. I've literally had white people contact me for therapy and say, I am addicted to these influencers. I'm addicted. And I yeah. know I am because I can't sleep at night. I can't do anything. I am constantly on Instagram on this stuff. Yeah. They're addicted. And they know they're addicts and they're trying to gain sobriety. And so I do not enable performative allyship. As you could already find out, because you're like, April, give me this one step away. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, nope. No, I know. I'm so glad that happened because it yeah. just shows how unconscious yeah. and programmed this stuff is. And, y- you know, and, and this is the same way I work with people. It's like, people are like, okay, well, I want to, you know, heal my money issues. Let's talk about a budget. Let's talk. I'm like, you can budget all you want, but we got to get to the root of these money issues in terms of your self-worth and you know, all those things. So this is what I really feel from you and why I was so happy to find you and find out about your work is that Mm. this is what creates, because change only comes when healing happens. People only change when they actually heal. And you are teaching people how to heal racism not, not just performative allyship. Yeah. Yes. So people, people, what they do is that they, ju- they basically size, Oh, she's not teaching. They don't even know what they're doing. They just come. Oh, she doesn't teach performative allyship. And let me tell you something. Some of the influencers, they either misunderstand me or they know, they know the jig is up. Right. Oh, April's actually teaching healing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and truth be told, I have confronted some of these influencers. They're not like the Uber megas, but they're like mini megas. And I, this is a while back and I confronted them and they flat out told me, they're like, these white people, like they deserve it. Mm. That's when I knew that they were intentionally harming white people. So that's not a guess that mm-hmm. sometimes that happens where they're, de- they feel it's the narcissism. They feel like they deserve my punishment. hmm and I'm like, wow, that like shocked me a little mm. bit years ago. Mm. Um, but anyway, yes, white people get very burned out in activist spaces. So POC experience racial battle fatigue because they fail to set boundaries, hold space for their sensitivity, and that they're overstimulated with all the trauma and all that. That's where you're going to hear a lot of black folks, for example, saying, maybe you need to get away from watching social media. Maybe you need to, and that's actually a healthy thing. Maybe you need to get away from that because it's you're re-traumatizing yourself. You're re-exposing yourself to things that are too painful. Yeah. And you really need to honor your sensitivity. You need to honor your feelings. 
Yeah. You shouldn't be overly exposing yourself with violence of black folks. No, no, no. Because it's too painful, right? And that's actually very trauma informed. This is, and that, that I will agree with. Like, that's a beautiful thing. As white people, white people are under a different predicament, which is I need to traumatize myself looking at these black bodies and looking at POC bodies because I need to do this to get used to it so that I can do something. Mm. I need to desensitize myself, get used to it because POC have gotten used to it. But guess what? See, the truth of the matter is POC haven't gotten used to it. Yeah, it's still traumatizing every time. It's still traumatizing every time. Now, what POC will do, and we've most of us have done, we do get into a state of, yes, numbing. Yeah. We do emotionally numb ourselves and have, right? And that's why healing trauma is so important. So, so white people then feel obligated. Uh, they then burn out. And when they burn out, then the POC go, you see, this white person, totally unreliable. They're not, they're not in solidarity. They're not in allyship. Look at them. They're betraying us. It's like, no, boo. The white person has burned out just like have you have, but it's different. This white person has burned out. If you really want them to be an ally, they need to do, the, as, you, as you said, Christine, the deeper work yeah. so that they can actually be an authentic ally. So essentially, Christine, in, in some a lot of what I do, especially in coaching. So for those of you interested, and we'll talk about this, like who later want to coach with me, yep, yep. like what I do through a lot of the coaching for the whole year program is actually help white people wean off the addiction of performative allyship. Mm. That takes time. They, yeah. It prepares them for therapy because most white people don't want to, they don't want to give up performative allyship. They well, don't want to. It feels too good. Like the savior feels an, too good. Yeah, it's an addiction, and it feeds that addiction. that that part, that perfectionist part of us. That's mm-hmm. like, but I, mommy and daddy, love me if I am the best. If I follow the rules, and I'll fit in with all the people, and yeah, this it makes it makes so much sense. What about April people of color? Where do where do they go to do their deep mm-hmm. work? They need to go to psychotherapists that treat PTSD and complex PTSD. So what I do on my end is I treat the perpetrators of racism. I treat their complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And what POC need to do is they need to go to, on average, I mean, they can go to a white person if they want, but I would say, I would say, and this gets actually pretty complicated too. And this is really going to open up another can of worms because unfortunately in my experience, even within my circle, even within the black community, they're psychotherapists. They're a very small community. Mm. Many black therapists have not gotten healing for their racial trauma. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so then what happens is that let's say a black person or other POC, they go to a therapist and they go, I'm going to go to a therapist that looks just like me and I'm not going to have to go through racism. Well, you may not go through racism, but if that POC has not healed from their own racial trauma, it's just going to be a venting session. Yeah. They can't take you where you need to go. They can't take you where you need to go because mm-hmm. they themselves have not healed from racial trauma. So that's why, by the way, a lot of, now you understand fully why I'm the only one that does this. Because first of all, like it's hard enough for those of us that are POC to help POC who've gone through racial trauma. Yeah. And then imagine I'm like now treating the perpetrators yeah. of, ra- of racism. You've had to do a lot of your own work. <laughs> a lot of my own work. So I had to do racial trauma work. Then I had to, when I first started doing coaching, even when I created my theory, and this is another confession, and it's just a fact. And it is, 
it, it, it's definitely damning me in that sense, but I believe like it needs to be said because this is a learning moment. Mm-hmm. This is a learning moment. I hope that what I say gives people the courage to hold space for their imperfections, which is that I failed to, I absolutely got enmeshed with some of my coaching clients mm-hmm. because at that time I hadn't refined identifying the covert racism. Mm-hmm. And so as a POC, if you, that's how the racism slips in and can hurt you. If you can't quickly identify performative allyship, like very refined, if you can't do that, white people are going to slip into your life and they don't mean it, but they're going to hurt you and they're going to betray you. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, is that like, for example, some of those, you know, white coaching clients, like I thought, like I've had uh, colleagues of mine who are therapists and also coaches, oh, you can be from them. Cause like coaching's not therapy. So like it's no big deal. And I was like, wait a minute, that seems like a dual relationship to me. Mm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Initially I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. But I was like, oh, well, like my colleagues say, I mean, so I just like, didn't even question that. I just didn't wow. like what everybody else did. Like people that are very well off and they do, you know, I just assume I, I must be tripping. Mm. So then some of these people, some of these, and this is going to happen for a lot of you white folks. Listen to me. You're going to want to friend these people that you're learning from. They're my friend. It's like, no, they're not your friend. Mm-hmm. nor should the POC be trying to befriend them. And mm-hmm. that was a major mistake that I made like my first year of doing my work. We weren't like close, close friends, but I was more friendly in, in a friendship kind of way. Right. And I, and I loosened my boundaries. Yeah. And, and you know why? Because again, I thought I was setting good boundaries, but I actually wasn't. And that's because I, I had to do even more of my own healing work. Mm. And so halfway through my own putting everything together, I had to go back to therapy and I needed mm. to get EMDR. Mm. Yeah. And I am literally like in August about to, um, myself after my gosh, after, you know, going through my own codependency yeah. and healing from that. Now I'm like, Oh, EMDR is so amazing. And so now I'm about to start my training in EMDR. Oh, that's awesome. I love EMDR. And so EMDR is actually and I've told all of my uh, patients in my private practice, Racism Recovery Center, I've told them, I'm like, look, I'm not certified in EMDR yet, but is it okay if I practice EMDR with you? I'm being in full transparency. This is the truth. And I need to know how you feel about that. And they're like, you know, and, and you, they're like, okay, I'll let you try it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be doing is mm. learning EMDR. And again, you can see I'm learning all the time, Christine, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm learning all the time, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, even at that time, I mean, when you say that I've had to learn my lessons, like I had to learn my lesson of knowing that white people aren't complicit that got squashed. Right. I I had to learn that I had more trauma healing for myself to do my racial trauma. I had to heal mother wounding. Hello, back to childhood abuse. Right. Like I had to deal with all that in EMDR. I thought I was good. I've been to therapy before. Nope. I needed it deeper. So the thing is, is that basically now I have effectively now for the most part, like for real, for real, set like beautiful boundaries with white people. And that's why I'm now truly paying it forward. And of course, doing that webinar about really how to, like, if I can help POC, like not do what I did and they can learn, it'll spare them a lot of pain. Yeah. Because people always ask me, Christine, like, April, how do you do the work that you do and not be the victim of racism? Like, are you just the exception? Like, what is it? No, I absolutely, my first year of doing this work was absolutely the victim of racism uh, because I did not set 
the best boundaries with some of my white clients. And they turned around and what they did was some of them projected their own racist perfection onto me. So as I was kind of learning about this stuff and I wasn't quote perfect, right. They then were like, Oh, you know, so then they were like, I don't understand this. This wasn't a majority of the clients, but a few of them where I had some conflict. And that is because I didn't set effective boundaries with them. Of course, they're going to act in racist ways. That's why they're there. Yeah. But for me, it was like, I needed to learn, oh, this is how to set effective boundaries with these covert racists, right? And again, this, at the time I had the race signature theory, but I hadn't really fully conceptualized. Like now I've come full circle. So it took me two years of making a lot of mistakes Yeah. and it created a, a, it was painful. It was learning. I had to go to therapy. Like, oh my goodness. I've been through, you're right. I, I've just been through a hell of a lot to do mm-hmm. what I'm doing right now. <laughs> like a hell of a lot. And I say all of this, some people are like, why is she saying that? Like she should just keep it to herself. And it's like, no, I don't want to keep it to myself because what I find is that when I confess these things publicly, it really helps people. It really gives people the permission to make mistakes and to say, you know what? This is personal development. Yeah. I made mistakes. And that's how we heal. It's acceptable mm-hmm. to make mistakes. Yes, sure. I know some people listen to this and judge me. I know that, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Cause you're not into the performance aspect. You're into the authentic yeah. work. So you I let that go. You that, care, that, you that care more about helping people. Yeah. It's it's caring yeah. more about actually healing, helping people heal than being mm-hmm. liked and getting likes. Oh, it's, this is, this is so, so good. I really want you to tell people where they can get that webinar and I'll link everything up in the show notes as well, where they mm-hmm. can work with you, take your programs, where they can listen to your podcast. Give, please give people all the, all the, all the things. So where can people find my work? Well, you go to www.racismrecoverycenter.com. When you get there, you're going to see a link that says services. And the three services that I provide are education, coaching, and therapy. So with the education, the link is going to take you to my Crowdcast site where I do lots of webinars, like live webinars. And what's great is that when I do these webinars, like if you missed it, I mean, you can always go back and watch webinars from the past. And I'm always doing webinars like every single month. And... For example, like the one that I got going on right now, major, major webinar is the, it's, it's reading the book by Cynthia Wall called The Courage to Trust. And that's about, what's important about that is that if you truly want to be in true solidarity with POC, you need to learn to trust yourself because as a white person, when you act in unintentionally racist ways, you're like, I can't even trust myself not to act in a racist way. Right. Cause then you're like, I don't trust myself. Right. So then if you don't learn to trust yourself, you also can't become trustworthy, trustworthy to other people. So that's a very important step. So we're going through Cynthia Wall's book and, and I'm helping everyone, you know, you get a therapist to kind of like talk to you about the book and, you know, it's a therapist that wrote the book, clinical social worker. And then you have a clinical social worker that's like guiding you through this book to kind of help answer questions and give feedback and help digest that. Right. Then we have the coaching and the coaching is a year long program. I have enrollment twice a year. I'm currently coaching 75 people. And then in the, the next coaching enrollment is on November the 12th, 2020. And I'm actually going to be doing two different programs, two different programs. And I'm very transparent about cost. 
So everybody that follows me on Instagram knows that I just tell people money, like right off the bat, like this is how much it's going to cost. This is that. So the, the current cost of the program is $50 a month for a full year. Now that may seem kind of low, like, ah, it's kind of low, but that's because I'm not doing direct video feedback like I had done before. My other program that I used to do was seven weeks long and it was $3,000 for seven weeks. But there were a lot of people saying, you know, we really can't like, I can't, my, it just doesn't fit my budget. Like I, I cannot, I don't think I'll ever be able to afford like $3,000 for a program. And it was progressively going up. It started at 1400 and then eventually went to 3000 So then I decided, you know what, I am going to create a more affordable course, but I'm not going to be doing live video interaction. So that, so the one in the fall, there's two in the fall. There's one that has a higher price tag and there's one that has a lower price tag. Okay. So there's two options. So the first option is the one with the lower price tag, which that one will have increased from 50 to 75. So that's basically $900 for the year. And you're getting a full year of coaching curriculum with me. And it's on Facebook. And I use Facebook and a lot of people are like, I don't want to use Facebook because it's very personal. I'm sorry, folks, but I use Facebook. And the reason why I use Facebook is it's free. So it's, it, it's good for me financially to use Facebook. It, what it does is that you're getting a lower, you're getting a cheaper program because I'm using tools that are free. We got to reduce the cost somewhere. So that's how it's cheap, <laughs> you know, cause I'm using tools that are free. So we got to somehow reduce cost, right? we got to reduce the overhead, right? So that one's $75 a month. And so that's a full year program. That's like, you get to coach with me for a full year. Now, how do I actually coach? I coach by coaching you in the Facebook, like basically writing stuff back and forth. And that's what we're doing right now with the coaching group. So right now I've got seven coaching groups. Each of them have at a minimum 10 people, maximum about 12. And each of those groups, like they're in their own little unit. So it creates that intimacy, but I'm still coaching quite a few people, but it's easier for me because I'm just kind of interacting on Facebook, right? Mm. So that's a really affordable deal. That's like, you can't, I mean, what program are you going to get? You get like more bang for your buck, racism recovery, you know? Um, And what it does, it prepares you for really psychotherapy. That's what, so you know, when they, when you hear coaching, what is the goal? Yeah. Because that's what coaching is. Like you're trying to get a goal. Your coach is supposed to help you achieve a goal that you want. Well, it's to start psychotherapy to address your racism. So that's what the coaching is for. So it's very much preparation for going into therapy to address the racism. Uh, Now, the other program that is more expensive is $10,000. And even that is actually pretty darn affordable um, for what it is. So that's going to be, we're talking probably, uh, bi, bi-weekly twice a month videos, plus the Facebook, or I may end up using another program. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's going to be $10,000 a month for a full year, um, of video feedback from me, gr- group homework assignments, all that stuff. So that's that. So you have a it's more like of a masterclass right. class level type of cost. Okay. So you have the masterclass, which is the video, and then you have the more affordable ones so that those who want to get coaching from me but can't afford the $10,000 a year, you they can do that. Access. Okay. So awesome. there's two different options. Awesome. Right. Thank you. Because I actually have had people that are frustrated <laughs> that I yeah. don't have the video. They're like, I can't afford that. Like, I actually can't afford that. And like, I want to do that. So I'm right. like scratching my head like, yeah, I probably need to have a higher ticket item available. Yeah. So that's like what I'm doing, right? Amazing. And it's the beta 
And I do encourage you all, like I always talk to my betas from before to get in on that because it will It'll eventually change. being a $25,000 program. Yeah. This is like the beta. So it's cheap. It's, I mean, for those who can afford $10,000 for a year, like for yeah. them and their budget. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then we have therapy and basically you fill out a form and you're going to get an email back yep. and, um, you'll just answer some questions. And if all, if let's say you live in Colorado and you, you know, there's certain things going down where you meet that criteria to work with me because mm. I'm licensed in Colorado, then you'll be able to schedule an appointment with me to just kind of have a brief chat to see if we're a good fit. Amazing. And that's pretty much the way it works. And so only Colorado can have one-on-one with you because that's the only place you're licensed. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Got I'm it. licensed in Texas too, but okay. I really feel more comfortable just working with people in Colorado. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I have learned so much more from you today than uh, this has been the most, um, you've been my best teacher on this subject. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the places you've had to go inside yourself to be able to hold this work, to be able to teach this work, to be in that place in Savasana where you're open to receiving the kind of insight that you did. That was such a turning point and probably wasn't the easiest insight to receive. So I mm-hmm. really just deeply acknowledge you. I hope people uh, will we'll link everything up in the show notes. Go check it out. Dive deeper with April. Really take in what she said about this is this is an opportunity to heal, not just do and perform. This is really an opportunity to heal. And then I feel from that place of healing, our actions are that authentic, lasting, like you said, true solidarity, true allyship. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. 